Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon, and then we're up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers, and top commentators. It's Friday the 1st of December and coming up on the program, how close did a large Johannesburg hospital come to having its electricity cut off this week? The worrying rise of online trading scams, a fake news warning sounded ahead of next year's election. Will the doors of the Johannesburg City Library ever open again? And is it okay to wear shorts if you work in the office? Earlier this week, City Power threatened to disconnect electricity at the Charlotte Maclaike Hospital in Johannesburg. The institution reportedly owes 40 million rand to City Power, which the utility says Gauteng Health had promised to settle on Monday, but at that stage failed to do so. Jack Bloom speaks from the Democratic Alliance on Health Matters in the province, and he leads the show for us today. So, Mr. Bloom, what's the situation right now then? Well, it should never have come to the situation where they're threatening to cut off a hospital. I mean, it's just unbelievable that it's dragged on for so long. But I asked a question earlier this year about what was owing for electricity by the Gauteng Health Department. Uh, the figure was about 400 million rand. It wasn't just to Johannesburg. It was to other municipalities as well. So I think the Gauteng Health Department's notorious for not paying uh, suppliers on time in general and all of its accounts and it's just disgusting quite frankly that we've had the standoff between city power and the Carting health department when they should have been paying their bills like uh, everybody else jack bloom is it a question of tardiness or is it uh, financial capacity or a bit of both well it's just inefficiency and financial problems and uh, you know general incompetence as i said the Carting health department seems to be incapable of paying its bills on time uh, but uh, I, I called earlier this year for Premier Panyaza Lasufi to actually step in because that's how serious it is. He seems to have lots of other things to do, but uh, not to resolve a crisis like this. Imagine if uh, a hospital like Schaffenknecker Johannesburg Hospital actually did have their power cut. It's not just that hospital, Rahima Musa, Helen Joseph Hospital. All of these uh, hospitals should have been up to date with uh, their accounts, and if there was a dispute over the billing, they should have sorted out uh, in a very timely manner instead of what we've seen this week. What is of more concern, if reports are to be believed, is that uh, the city, uh, city power gave uh, the hospital four hours to remove patients from ICU or to transfer them. Well, I was astonished when I heard that. Uh, I mean, you know, it's unconstitutional to say the least. People have the right to life. 
But, I mean, you know, city power, I suppose, is desperate, but there should have been other ways to resolve this. Look, at the end of the day, uh, you know, cities also need revenue. They need to be paid to provide services. But uh, I just think that just been an extraordinary uh, series of events this week. Uh, uh, both city power and housing health department, I think, should have sorted this out long ago instead of all these public threats to, frankly, uh, cut off power to patients uh, who could have died if, if they went ahead with it. To the best of your knowledge, is the situation at least temporarily resolved? It sort of seems to be, but we don't quite know. Um, uh, there's still these billing dispute accusations. It seems that Gauteng Health Department has paid off more money this week that they should have paid off before. But I don't know why we go from crisis to crisis with this. Uh, there is a deeply rooted problem in the Gauteng Health Department about paying their bills on time and this is why we've had food shortages earlier this year if you remember mm. uh, at Chris Arnie Bagwa's hospital and, and other hospitals so if you don't pay suppliers on time they're not going to supply and I suppose City Power just had enough of it and, and we saw the threats that we've seen which should never have been done quite frankly but seems to have got results. Within the firmament of the Gauteng Health Department itself, what efforts then or what changes need to be made, uh, in your opinion, to facilitate a smoother payment schedule to prevent this kind of thing from happening in future? Well, the problem is we've got an acting chief financial officer, we've got an acting head of department, and this is because the previous two officials are actually suspended because of corruption allegations or the one left because of corruption issues and we just don't have the level of competence and efficiency and dedication dare I say uh, to sort out this issue it seems that they wait for a crisis and then they act how many other hospitals might find themselves, Jack Bloom, in a similar situation, do you think? Well, Helen Joseph Hospital has been mentioned, Rahima Musa, even Christani Baragwanath Hospital was supposed to be owing more than two million rand. And as I said, I asked this question earlier this year, and in fact, there were other amounts owing in other cities. It's not just Johannesburg hospitals. So it's just rather distressing that it's come to this. I hope that uh, they do sort out their problems. Uh, but the day, Housing Health Department must pay its bills. It's just incredible that they think that they're immune to, to paying their bills, not just electricity, there's other municipal services that they seem to be tardy in paying as well. And why not pay suppliers on time? It's just incredible that suppliers are just refusing to supply now because they don't get paid. Is that widespread? Absolutely. Uh, Housing Health Department's got a notorious reputation for not paying, so there's certain companies won't deal with them at all. And, uh, you know, I think there needs to be, a, you know, quite frankly, a wholesale change of top management and I actually think a political change because uh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that this department is, quote, going to be turned around and investigations and commissions and task teams and it just never seems to happen. I think that uh, uh, people are being protected because they ANC cadres. I think that corruption is being protected. The stakes are high. Babita Diakaran was assassinated, let us not forget. And she was trying to stop payments of about one billion rand going to fishy suppliers at uh, one hospital alone, the Tabisa Hospital. Now, I think every hospital has a scam. Uh, I think that uh, action against uh, officials is taking far too long. 
you know that the suspended uh, CEO of Tembisa Hospital still hasn't uh, had his disciplinary hearing. It's now going to take place next year. Away, and he's still being paid all the time. And so is the chief financial officer who's also under investigation. In fact, I worked out that just these two senior officials alone, they suspended with pay, uh, have been paid more than three million rand. I mean, that's just incredible. And there's other officials who just get suspended with pay forever. So they, they don't appear to be serious about disciplining officials, laying criminal charges. And unfortunately, everything drags out. And at the end of the day, it's patients who suffer. Jack Bloom, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. A multi-group organization called Election Watch has put out a statement reaffirming its commitment to ensuring the success and integrity of the 2024 election. I'm interested to know why the statement's been put out and what the principal concerns are. And with us now is Rechotso Fetze Chekani from the organization Defend Our Democracy. So let's go with that if we can. Why has Election Watch felt the need to put out a statement like this at this time? What are you worried about? So it's not just about a statement, and thank you for having me today. It's more about how we keep the energy that civil society has built up over the last two years around the integrity of the elections, right? And the integrity of the elections around how do you get civic education and voter registration drives that gets the most informed type of citizen coming into the polling stations and getting as many people into the polling stations. And we view that work not ending the day before elections, but continuing on that particular day. There have been different instances at voting stations. We recently saw them at voter registration drives a couple of weeks ago. And the idea is how do you get the ordinary South African as well as organizations who have been accredited in the past by the IEC to be observers to essentially say rather than observing as a single organization accredited with the IEC, how does civil society create a coordinated effort in a manner and how we observe, why we're observing, and how we feed our information back to the IEC mm. on election day. I think our focus is not taking for granted that elections will just flow smoothly, but actively participating in making sure that happens. I'm wondering to myself as I hear you whether you might think there's a cynicism creeping in and with that energy that you talk about, do you think it might be dissipating? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's a cynicism. I think it's more of a realization that 2024 will be the most likely be the most contested national and provincial elections since 1994, in the sense that there is a higher stake in this game, and therefore there should be increased vigilance around the elections. Um, It would be a pity for us, and I keep saying this to my colleagues and supporters, that you don't want to have something happening on election day, and then the next day wondering what could we have done. And I think this is just essentially creating that insurance policy by having civil society as a domestic um, observer mission of sorts, also participating and not taking it for granted. Do you have confidence in the important structures like the IEC and the South African police? Oh, the utmost confidence. Um, So we are working closely with the IEC. So every organization, and I would hope that everyone goes onto our website, defendourdemocracy.co.za, to register. Every organization that registers onto our platform has to also find accreditation from the IEC and will redirect them that way. Every organization then also has to go through training provided by the IEC and ourselves to make sure all the observers 
are working alongside with the IEC according to their protocols. Um, the re- the, I'll tell you what, the reason why I ask that question, and I, I, under, I understand your endorsement and support of the IEC, but the organization uh, is amplifying its own concerns about funding and capacity. Correct. So if you've noticed over the last 10 years, um, there's been a level of systemic, almost defunding, if I had to be dramatic that way, defunding of Chapter 9 institutions across mm. the board. And the IEC is no different in that regard. The IEC, for the limited amount of money they're give, uh, given for the large mandate, needs all the support that they can take. This is not to say that the IEC is incapable of providing a free and fair election. I think there's no evidence to show us that that's the case. But it's to ask the IEC, where can we help? And the IEC's uh, processes to allow organizations to assist is through this observation mechanism that we're utilizing. And the only difference this election compared to previous elections is that we want that observation accreditation amongst organizations to be a coordinated effort on a platform that communicates directly to the IEC as well. One of the concerns that have been raised by your organization, and I guess it's something uh, which is evident around the world is countering disinformation or so-called fake news i'm always uncomfortable about that term fake news because news by definition shouldn't be fake but what specific strategies then is election watch thinking about what plans can be implemented to counter what will inevitably inevitably be a major threat against the poll next year yeah So this wouldn't necessarily be the misinformation or fake news that would happen on social media per se, but about incidences that happen at polling state, at voting stations in particular. And through our platform, we're allowing observers um, and ourselves at our operating center that we'll build is this idea of triangulating incidences. Um, So we're taking historical data from previous hotspots that the IEC is uh, found out from previous elections and their predictions about where future possible hotspots could be. And then saying, well, how do we make sure that when our observers um, either log in an incident, which they have to do every single hour, whether it's a peaceful incident, whether there's some sort of disruption at the polling station, how do we both verify that information? And that's through a coordinated effort with our observers and regional observers. And then the second element is how we communicate that with the IEC. So for us, it's not to make that final determination, but to create extra pipelines of information that the IEC can then make determinations from, from observers mm. that are accredited with them to help verify what their, what their helicopter view would be and what our ground level view would be. Thank you very much for talking to me, Rechotso Fetze Chekani from the organization Defend Our Democracy. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Our next story requires a little background, I think. The Johannesburg City Library is located in an Italianate building and it first opened in 1935. It has over 1.5 million books, I'm told, and other items in its collection. Trouble at the moment, though, is you can't get in. The Metro says it requires another four years to complete renovations after being closed in May 2021 due to non-compliance with fire safety regulations. Someone who's concerned, feels aggrieved by the current situation, is Griffin Shea, who is owner of Bridge Books in downtown Johannesburg. He's with us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And firstly, why is this building, this institution, so important to the city? 
There's no denying it's a huge repository of literary and artistic resources for the city. Just the main city library in town, that one structure has one and a half million books inside. It's got an art gallery, it's got a music gallery, it's got a theater. Uh, so it actually does, when it's functioning well, function as this huge gathering space for lots of different kinds of people from across the city. And I think in Joburg, you know, we don't have many of these public gathering places that sort of crossroads for the city. So it's also a very important social institution because it's a place where all kinds of different people can mix. So leading on from that then, since its closure in May 2021, if memory serves, broadly, how is this affecting the community? Where's the deficiency now? Well, I mean, unfortunately, you know, what should be a really kind of gorgeous public space then makes a bit of a dead space because you've got the main city library, and then there's the two city blocks that filled by library gardens, Bears and Odia Square. Then you've got the provincial legislature at the old city hall, which is also not open to the public. I mean, it's in use, but it's not a functioning as a public space in that sense. And on the other side, you've got the Rissick Street Post Office, which is also in desperate need of repair and more love. And another park on the other side that's also adopted by a nonprofit and very well loved. But this huge gap in between becomes sort of a dead zone in the city when actually that's our welcome mat. You know, that should be the part of the city where we're telling people, welcome, these are things you can do, places to gather, ways to celebrate. And it's an important transit hub, too. I mean, there's most of the transit networks connect within a few blocks of this space. This should be where people are kind of, you know, the beating heart of the city. And are you seeing tangible evidence that that beating heart is slowing? It's really quite dramatic. You know, so we, the bookstore, um, my bookstore, Bridge Books, is on Commissioner Street and has been since we opened seven years ago. But we, you know, we did an exercise to sort of count the foot traffic. And, you know, one day passing in front of what's a very, should be a very busy street, we only had 50 people pass by on an entire workday. You know, there was not many bodies. And I think, you know, part of that is not just the library, it's the changing dynamic of the city because, the corporates and the provincial and local government offices, people are working remotely now. So a lot of the apartments, the middle-class apartments that have been converted out of the old office buildings, that's where they used to live. Uh, but a lot of them now have moved out to the suburbs. And so you have this huge need to kind of reimagine the space to adapt to our current reality, which is it's no longer going to be a space of offices. It's definitely transforming to a space of education. You know, you look at the university moving into the old Anglo complex, just the number of private schools and crushes that have opened in the city, serving all kinds of different communities. Um, but that's the kind of dynamic that we need to be, you know, that's the seeds that have been planted, so we need to water them. And the library and library gardens are a really important part of that. I'm curious, you're, you're not a South African, obviously. Uh, why is an issue like this so close to your heart? I grew up in a family of librarians and teachers and engineers, and so that's where I grew up, was in the library. It was a really important space for me. I lived in a very small town, like 25,000 people. And in the old days, I'm going to really date myself. You know, we had three channels on TV. We had, <laughs> you know, not much access to the outside world. The internet was not even a concept, you know. But that was my access to the outside world. That was the way that I got enjoyment and pleasure. And as I got, you know, when I got older and I was figuring out my own identity and that's also where i found out oh there's other gay people in the world you know i'd never even never crossed my mind until i found books in the library about it and i think here you know it just feels like such a wasted opportunity and then also an opportunity that is a, a, an opportunity in a real sense you know it's a challenge it's a very difficult thing to figure out because the city says they do need 45 million rand an additional budget to complete the repairs that were started a few years ago 
And we all want the building to be repaired. Obviously, you know, we want it to be safe. We want the fire safety measures to be there. We want it to be have a generator so that, you know, it's surviving during power cuts. But that's not like an unthinkable sum of money, I think, for a hundred year old heritage building. That's a very complex place to work. You know, it's not like you can't just bulldoze and put up a new one, you know, but to maintain that, it's not an unthinkable sum. And I think to engage with the city in a slightly different way around, okay, well, that's the money you need. You know, and we have a model for that in the city already. If you look at the improvement districts that, you know, they're basically public-private partnerships that are providing supplemental cleaning and supplemental security and all kinds of wayfinding devices. People don't get lost. There's a way to think about the library in that way, too. Let's raise some money externally outside of the city budget, because that's why they say it'll take three more years to reopen, is they would need three budget cycles to fund it. But I think there's so much goodwill towards that space. There is a way to do that through through a nonprofit or some kind of endowment. I mean, the city itself in Johannesburg, if you look at recent events, doesn't have a particularly good pedigree when it comes to repair maintenance, does it? Well, and I think that's also, you know, to be acknowledging the challenge, you know, mm. so I think... What does Joburg property have, like 140-something buildings that they need desperate needs of repairs? Even the library is not in nearly as bad condition as some of these. You know, the work that needs to happen at the library is truly maintenance. You know, it's not in a state of collapse at all. It's a beautiful space and is a functional space if it was open. But I think to really think about it in a different way, we're like, okay, what about the Market Theatre, for example, which has the Market Theatre Foundation that, yes, receives money from the government, but also from other sources and can supplement the running of the theater and make sure that staff are being paid well and help with some of the creative programming. You know, I think that's a really interesting model to think about for the library. Like there is a Friends of the Joburg Library and they're lovely, lovely, but I think, well, maybe let's start using that kind of organization in a more dynamic way, in a kind of a richer way and say, look, we understand it belongs to the city and it's a public resource and everyone wants it to remain that way, but can we help you with some external expertise with some additional points of view, some different ideas about how money works. Lots of expertise in the city that I think would be willing to contribute to that. I'm going to leave it there. Griffin Shea, thank you very much indeed. Owner of Bridge Books in downtown Johannesburg. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Online trading scams are on the rise and investors are being urged to assess legitimacy and licenses of global trading platforms. Now, according to Roger Eskenazi, Managing Director of the platform Tickmill South Africa, investors can avoid falling prey to scams and fraud by ensuring that the trading platforms they use are correctly licensed and are legitimate. Roger, a very warm welcome to you. So shed some light for me on the current trend of these scams that you refer to and how prevalent they've become. Yes, uh, good afternoon, uh, Jeremy. Uh, I think the penny dropped after you know the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis, where you had these firms that were trading with optionality and CFDs um, that wiped out iconic names such as Bear Stearns and, and Lehman's. And dealing in the aftermath of that, uh, you know, you've seen uh, very strict tightening of regulations in Australia and London, and obviously South Africa trying to follow suit. Um, these guys were training with enormous leverage and uh you know something had to be done about it and in south africa we weren't too far from the trend either if i if, you know, looking at the fsca annual report the other day now if you can't ever if, if you're ever battling to sleep just try and read the fsca annual report um but this will give you an idea you know, 1006 between the period of 20, 2022 and 2023 from may to july 1,668 enforcement actions, 
420 licenses were withdrawn. 210 debarments, which means people have been banned from the industry. 47 financial scam alerts issued and 984 licenses suspended. I mean, that's extraordinary. Uh, It's it's absolutely extraordinary, Roger. It it would seem that it really is the Wild West out there. Is it those figures? Does it mean that the regulation is working or that the body is simply engulfed? Well, I think it's, it's trying to stem a tsunami, the previous tsunami. I mean, that uh, this industry was, uh, specifically the online trading industry, was fraught with these guys, the overseas jockeys trying to come in and, and, and capture some of the South African market, which they see as a very lucrative gateway to not only in South Africa, but to the rest of Africa. Um, and that is why the ODP regime came in on the 8th of August, 2018. It was subsequently extended till January 19. And, uh, you know, credit to the, to, to the FISCA. You know, they have uh, perhaps overcompensated now because, you know, in order to get an ODP license, uh, it's inordinately difficult. I mean, there's a very stringent, uh, for uh, in our case, in the case of Tignal. Now, Tignal is, is highly regulated in some of the most stringently regulated jurisdictions in the world, in the UK, in the Seychelles, in Cyprus, in Malaysia, in Dubai. Uh, it took us just over four years and millions of rands to get this license. Mm. Um, we support the process because you know it's just going to weed out the uh, um, all, all the all the pretenders in the industries. But to get this license, you really have to demonstrate uh, very high capital adequacy ratios, uh, strong balance sheets, a strong commitment to um, governance and risk controls. You need an independent board in line with the King Committee's uh, recommendations on governance. So. We support it, but uh, they perhaps overcompensate. I think, other than the big, ba- other than the big banks, uh, there's a handful of licenses that have been granted to international players and local players. And I think at last count, 62 were either declined or did not elect to proceed with the process. I'm assuming, Roger, that it's up to traders themselves to do their homework. Uh, what advice then would you give to those who are new to forex trading, who then want to protect themselves? Is there a is there a blueprint that they should be following in that respect? You know, Jeremy, every day I'm staggered at the either naivety or stupidity of South African consumers. Every day I open up the press and I see another Ponzi scheme and this another BHI where this fellow walked walked off with three three billion rand of investors' money. I mean. It, well, it was an, it was a non-regulated investment. If it's not regulated by the FSCA, walk away. Why take the risk? There's, if the reason it's not regulated, um, yet you know these guys they continue to fall for scamsters, and, and and I don't understand what it is. But just the following, you know, they can just go onto the FSCA website. It's amazing what you can even do with a Google search. Look at references, look at testimonials, look and see where else these guys are registered. It's just extraordinary how every day yeah. that, you know, this, these, these scamsters are uncovered. Let me, let me, let me hazard a guess at, at, at the answer to the question that you've just raised, Roger. It's all about ignoring risk because human nature is predicated on us all wanting to make a quick buck. And people are seeing opportunity because uh, these schemes are often uh, very, well, very well marketed and overpromise, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm astounded at some of the <laughs> advertising that uh, I see, you know, deposit 10,000 guaranteed 50,000 five days later. I mean, who falls for that nonsense? Mm. Uh, you know, it's just, I mean, these are the kind of guys, uh, as I alluded to earlier, 
in all the disciplinary actions that need to be you know, shut out of the industry and banned from even giving advice to legitimate clients because there are a lot of legitimate professional traders or guys who have a side business who trade, who want to trade uh, metals, and who want to trade indices and trade the NASDAQ and trade Forex. And I think this, this, this new ODB regime, although it's extremely strict, over time, you know, will weed it out. But it, once again, it's all dependent on the consumer. You know, they must do their homework and see who is regulated and licensed to do business in South Africa. Do we have a sense of who is operating or who the operators are of these, of, of these, these bogus schemes? Predominantly, they are offshore trading companies who are not licensed. And they come to the expos here, they put up a pretty stand and they offer leverage facilities. I mean, I think at the one expo we saw, um, we saw uh, uh, a provider offering one to 2,000 leverage. And that'll kill you. You, you know, you know if, if one trade goes wrong, you know, you, you know the consequences of negative gearing. You know, so the the three L's that can kill you is leverage, ladies, and liquor. Man, you don't need the other two L's. This two thousand <laughs> leverage, you know, yeah. you'll go straight to the grave. So it's most of these unscrupulous guys who come in and who want to slug at this market, which is a big market, um, but they're not prepared, or they don't have the balance sheet or the rigor, or the governance, or the risk controls in 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 in, um, yeah. in place to do it. But okay. they've been allowed to in the past. That's that's the problem. Roger Eskenazi, thank you so much for the blunt and uh, also very amusing assessment there. I do appreciate it, but uh, you have sounded a very important warning. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. All right, let's finish the program with this, and I'll fess up. It's another heatwave day here in Johannesburg, and much to my engineer Edward's horror, I'm wearing shorts. The conventional wisdom says the days of going to work in your black power suit and tailored white shirt dressed for high-powered jobs success are probably over. So how are things changing in South Africa, and what is deemed appropriate and not and when? With us now from uh, Workshop 17, it's a co-working space, is the Chief Executive Officer Paul Kirsten. Paul, these days, do we have to dress up for work these days, or are the rules changing? Good afternoon, Jeremy. Um, we don't have to dress up anymore. I don't think so. Um, but what you wear does have an impact. And just as an anecdote, you're wearing shorts at the moment. One of our locations, um, one of the landlords represents this gate. I saw someone come in in shorts, but this is quite a high-quality building, and we have... Um, like standards at companies, um, and he was wearing flip-flops. So there is still a bit of, of things that people are not used to it, but I think we, we've broken free from mm. the uniform, the black-powered suit, which is basically something to hide behind. And we don't want people to come to work to have to hide behind a uniform. People need to be themselves. They need to be able to form like they are. But, Paul, you've also got to be careful, though, because you also make a very valuable point that uh, clothing can also influence employee productivity and self-esteem, which is very important in the corporate space. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So there's also that element of conformity, but it's been shifting. It's been shifting before COVID and in COVID and what they wanted at home. And now we're looking to, to balance, to show who you are and feel comfortable in who you are but also feel part of something. So everyone feels, wants to belong. If you go to a workplace, you don't want to feel standing out too much or that people actually look at you like, 
what is he or she wearing? Mm. And can I trust this person to be a professional or to be able to help me in the way we want? Which is exactly what my engineer Edward was saying to me a little earlier today about <laughs> whether he can trust me to be a professional. Very quickly, time's against us. What best, what's the best advice then that you would give to managers in respect of this argument? I think the, um, the best advice is looking at what is the culture you want that you work with? How do you want your staff to feel when they come at work? And, and balance the professionality and allowing people to be themselves and having something unique um, and bringing themselves to the workplace. Because as a manager, that's what you want. You want people to bring them to bring the best of who they are. And you don't become the best if you're just in a uniform that everyone's wearing and there's no uniqueness to it. Balancing that uniqueness, balancing your company culture and balancing professionalism. I think well, we go through Paul Kirsten, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Chief Executive Officer from uh, Workshop 17. That's where we're going to end it uh, for this Friday, MoneyWeb at Midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we are up as a podcast. Goodbye to you. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.